Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the first night of our mission. Welcome everyone online that's streaming with us as well. I'm Tom Ponchak, the Director of Adult Faith Formation. And I hope that you can make it all three nights of this mission. And um, if you heard Jim speak at the homilies, uh, after the homily during Masses this weekend, I hope you take advantage and really enter into these next three days as a, uh, as a retreat, uh, as a true mission, rather than just, just coming to hear some talks. Let's begin uh, just with a, a quick prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day, uh, this Lenten season. We ask that you would give us the gift of your Holy Spirit to be with us, to lead us and guide us as we draw closer to your Son. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear what you have to say to us. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So our speaker is Jim Beckman. Uh, just a little bit about Jim. Jim uh, serves as the Executive Director of Evangelization and Catechesis for the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City. He is a graduate of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Woo! Uh, Jim has served in various roles of leadership for national, regional, local ministry ever since. Jim's also the Executive Director of Impact Center, a nonprofit dedicated to leadership development in the Catholic Church and serves as an adjunct professor for the Augustine Institute. He also serves as an ambassador for Franciscan University. He and his wife Meg live in Oklahoma City with their five children. And I'd like to welcome Jim Beckman. Check, check, check my, my on. There we go. Hello. Good to see you again. I saw you all at different masses, so I'm going through a little bit of which mass were you at? Uh, when, you, when you go to eight different masses on one weekend, right? Uh, that was a little crazy. Um, so if I am slightly limping tonight, uh, I wanted to give some explanation. Last night, I, uh, I'm getting older. Most of the other men here understand you have to get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom now at this age, sometimes multiple times. And uh, I just did not see that big, heavy, wooden coffee table between me and the bathroom last night and <laughs> literally walked into it at way too fast of a pace. Uh, and I woke up this morning and it wasn't so bad other than all the blood in my bed, which I didn't even know that I had cut myself because it was dark. Uh, I was like, oh, wow, I'm going to have to explain that to the maid. Um, so anyway, but tonight, right around dinner time, I, as I started walking, I'm like, oh, wow, <laughs> this is really getting bruised. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I'm, I'm going to take a little piece of Carmel home with me uh, when I go home on Thursday. And th but before we start, this is completely random, but maybe somebody can explain to me. I've lived in Oklahoma City now for three and a half years, and I've maybe had one person honk at me in the entire time that I've lived there, right? I've had somebody honk at me five times here, and I've only been here for like 24 hours. And it's always at a stoplight. I'm not looking at my phone. I'm not distracted. I'm just evidently not moving fast enough. The light turns, and I'm starting to put, you know, 
I have to think, right? I, I, I need to take my, feet, my foot off the brake, put it on the gas pedal, and maybe I'm an introvert, so I'm a little slow. And before I get the gas actually going forward, the person behind me honks. I'm evidently not doing the process fast enough. Is this normal around here? Like, what? I was like, what is going on? Like, I was telling my wife tonight, I was like, I just got honked at for the fifth time. Like, I, I'm so nervous now. Every time I go to a traffic light, I'm looking behind me to see, like, if somebody's behind me, I'm like, I got to go, and I got to go fast because uh, they're evidently in a hurry around here. Okay, uh, why don't we begin with a little evening prayer uh, and just ask the Lord's present to be, presence to be here and to just uh, flood this place with his grace Uh, I'm going to use the evening prayer from the Magnificat, and I've got a couple of helpers who are going to serve as lectors to do some of the readings, okay? Why don't we begin? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. I'll read the hymn as we begin since we can't sing. Forgive our sins as we forgive. You taught us, Lord, to pray, but you alone can grant us grace to live the words we say. How can your pardon reach and bless the unforgiving heart that broods on wrongs and will not let old bitterness depart? In blazing light, your cross reveals the truth we dimly knew, what trivial debts are owed to us, how great our debt to you. Lord, cleanse the depths within our souls and bid resentment cease. Then bound to all in bonds of love, our lives will spread your peace. Stop judging, and you will not be judged. Stop condemning, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Luke 6, 37. One of the ways in which we carry out the age-old human temptation to become like gods is to appoint ourselves judges of the universe and all that is in it, including ourselves and others. Yet our judgments are often flawed by selfishness. It is better to leave all judging in God's hands, as today's gospel exhorts us. God stands in the divine assembly. In the midst of the gods, he gives judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and favor the cause of the wicked? Do justice for the weak and the orphan. Defend the afflicted and the needy. Rescue the weak and the poor. Set them free from the hands of the wicked. Unperceiving, they grope in the darkness, and the order of the world is shaken. I have said to you, you are gods, and all of you sons of the Most High. And yet you shall die like men, you shall fall like any of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you rule all the nations. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen.
1 Corinthians chapter 4. It does not concern me in the least that I be judged by you or any human tribunal. I do not even pass judgment on myself. I am not conscious of anything against me, but I do not thereby stand acquitted. The one who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, do not make any judgment before the appointed time until the Lord comes, for he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will manifest the motives of our hearts, and then everyone will receive praise from God. The Canticle of Mary. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has come to the help of his servant Israel for he has remembered his promise of mercy the promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and his children forever. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. 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 Intercessions. As sharers in the world's sin, we stand before the Lord and cry out, the response, Lord, have mercy. To those who suffer from scrupulosity, grant the light to see the truth of your love. Lord, have mercy. To those who sit in judgment on their neighbors, grant the gifts of humility and charity. Lord, have mercy. To those who imagine themselves without fault, grant wisdom and self-knowledge. Lord, have mercy. And Lord, we pray in a special way tonight for this mission. We pray that you would open our hearts and our spirits. Uh, help us to be receptive. Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace of receptivity and expand our capacity to receive all that you desire to give us tonight. Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. May grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
great way to start uh, with evening prayer. Okay, so, uh, so, so I don't keep you in any more anticipation. I know that many of you are only here because you want to know what the monk said to this young man. Uh, you haven't been able to figure out life yet, and you're looking for an explanation. So here's what the monk shared with this young man. He actually said that the way creation is told is misunderstood. That on the first day, God actually created the dog. And he said to the dog, I want you to sit all day by the door of your house and bark at anyone that comes by. For this, I'm going to give you a span of 20 years, a lifespan of 20 years. The dog said, that's a long time to be barking. How about 10 years and I'll give you 10 back? So God said, okay. On the second day, God created the monkey. And he said to the monkey, I want you to entertain people, do tricks and make them laugh. For this, I'll give you a lifespan of 20 years. The monkey said the same thing as the dog. Monkey tricks for 20 years? That's a long time to perform. How about I do what the dog did and I'll give you 10 of mine back? God said, okay. On the third day, God created the cow. And he said, you must go into the field with the farmer all day and suffer under the heat of the sun. You will have calves and give milk to support the farmer's family. For this, I will give you a lifespan of 60 years. Well, the cow said, that's a tough life for 60 years. How about I do 20 and then I'll give you 40 back? So God said, okay. Then on the fourth day, God created man. And he said to the man, I want you to eat, sleep, play, marry, and enjoy your life. For this, I'll give you a lifespan of 20 years. Well, the man said, that's a lot of fun. Only 20 years? How about you give me my 20? Give me the 40 that the cow gave back to you, the 10 that the monkey gave back, and the 10 that the dog gave back. That would give me a lifespan of 80 years. How's that? And so God said, are you sure? And he's like, absolutely. So God said, okay. And now we know why things are the way they are. You're born, and for the first 20 years of our lives, we eat, sleep, play, and enjoy ourselves. Then we spend the next 40 years slaving in the field under the heat of the sun, trying to support our families. And then the next 10 years, we do monkey tricks, trying to entertain our grandchildren. And then you spend the last 10 years of your life sitting on the front porch, barking at everyone who goes by. An explanation for life. Hopefully your son isn't disappointed. <laughs> I can give you it in writing if you actually want. So her, her son 
only wanted to come to hear the explanation and didn't come. He says, well, how about you listen to it and then tell me when you get home? Uh, it's hysterical. Uh, well, thank God that's not really how it works, right? Uh, there, there's a lot, uh, a lot more uh, to life than that. Um, if, if I had to sum up for you, though, my life in a nutshell, uh, I, I, w- I would probably sum it up like this. Um, my life actually started with a lot of tragedy. When I was just a, a little baby, my dad was paralyzed, and uh, a few years later, one of my siblings died. I uh, had another sibling that was crippled. Uh, so just a lot of turmoil, a lot of tragedy, tragic circumstances, which those tragedies actually led to a lot of brokenness. That brokenness, as you get older, leads to a lot of bad choices, a lot of sin, and a lot of sin and a lot of bad choices leads to a lot of depression, and depression leads to anxiety and despair and even suicidal types of things which I have struggled with over the course of my life. So a lot of bad things, but despite all of those things, I've experienced even more God's mercy. God's grace, God's healing, God's restoration, real authentic joy and fulfillment, faith, hope, and love. So despite however bad things may sometimes get, the response of God in in my experience, and particularly when I met him in the midst of those circumstances, and, and, and in a certain sense, found him in them. Does that make sense? It's like, I'm not saying that God takes away all of those things because he doesn't. Those things happen. It's part of our human experience. But when you look to find God in the midst of them, he never disappoints you. And when you find him, whatever you've experienced, no matter how bad it is, actually what he offers you is, is more. He's kind of super abundant like that, you know. I, I, I want to break up the mission into three parts. Oh, that's convenient. There's three days. So I can do one part tonight and then another part tomorrow. Okay, sorry, I'm being, being stupid. It sounded funnier in my head than it did when it came out of my mouth. You ever had one of those thoughts? Um, but tonight is going to be particularly uh, difficult because it's a, harder, it's a harder part of the three. Uh, and you've seen this in the parish bulletin, so it's not a huge surprise. But tonight I want to talk about how there's more hard. Not a very fun topic. So have any, are any of you familiar, uh, sorry, random tangent, but are any of you familiar with Formed, the Formed platform? Have you seen The Search, Christophanic's new program on there, The Search? Do you know, do you know how he starts out the first episode? Yeah, like, like, it's like the first five minutes, right? You know, like he gets on the screen, there's all this beautiful photography and stuff like that. And then Chris gets on the camera for the first time and he's like, you're going to die. Like, what, what, what a way to start a program like that, right? Okay, I'm not, it's not that bad. I'm just saying there's more hard. I'm not telling you that you're going to die. I'll let Chris do that, okay? So there, there's more hard. And I, I, in, in some ways, I want to get the bad out of the way so I can focus the next couple of nights on, on good news. Um, 
But I think this is something that we all need to hear, okay? 2020. <laughs> I think we'll probably look back on 2020 as the year from hell or something, right? Like it, it was just uniquely marked. I talked about this a little bit in, in the little thing that I did at all the masses. It was just marked by tragic circumstances and frustrating things and obviously the pandemic, but like, like I said, just tons of other things in addition to that, you know. One of the weirdest, strangest election seasons ever uh, and then all of the riots and all of the things going on, like it was just a year like no other. Uh, I'm 55 and I'm sure that anyone who's close to my age and younger, it, it's the weirdest year that we've ever experienced in, in our history. There's some people who are a little bit older uh, who've already told me that they've had harder years. Uh, so this, this wasn't as hard maybe for someone who's had more life experience, but man alive, what, what a weird, strange year. And I, I don't know about you, but a, a lot of my friends, a lot of people that I know were like just clamoring for 2021. Like they could not wait for New Year's Eve because it was like, let's get this year over and move on to better things, right? 2021 is going to hold all promise of new stuff. Did, did anyone feel like this? Ce celebrate a little bit of uh, new, new Year's Eve, like hoping for something better, right? Well, I don't know. We've finished the first two months. Holy smoke, like this has almost been worse for me anyway than, than 2020, you know, ep epic snowstorm now, like one, one of the worst in like 20 years in Oklahoma City. I have been to seven funerals since January 1st. I mean, talk about what is going on. You know, like the, the, the death and the tragedy in just the first two months of this year is jarring. Like, what, what, what's happening, Right. Okay, so if, uh, if 2021 is supposed to bring something different, uh, I'd sure like to know what it is. Listen to this statement, because I, I think this is something that all of us need to absorb deep, deep into our hearts. I think we need to stop wishing and hoping for something better and just embrace what we actually have. Let me say it again, because I, like, if there's anything I would hope you would remember tonight, uh, we need to stop wishing and hoping for something better, for things to get better, and instead embrace what we have. I have found over and over again in my life, no matter how hard or how difficult the circumstances are, and like I, like I said, I've, I've had some pretty difficult experiences in my life, some hardship and tragedy. But in every single one of those situations, I've always found God somewhere in there. I think, I think one of the things that can happen to us in our human experience in the face of tragedy or hard, you know, di difficult things is sometimes we can wonder why would God allow this to happen, right? Like why, why would God do this to me, right? And we close off our heart a little bit to God and 
and turn away from him. It's the worst thing we could ever do in the face of tragedy. God doesn't do tragedy to us. Now, he may allow it. You could talk about his permissive will. You could get into some of the theology of all those things. But God, God does not do bad things to us. Do you know what does bad things to us? Sin. The fall of man all the way back in Genesis. That's what brings about an environment that we live in that's just fraught with tragedy. The fall, way back in Genesis, the fall actually broke our relationship with God. It broke our relationship with each other. It broke our relationship with ourselves. And it broke our relationship with the earth, with the planet. Like there were things that were held in balance in the planet that are no longer held in balance. It's the reason why we have floods and hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis. So sin ruptured all of these relationships that at one point were all in harmony. So when bad things happen to us, actually who we should really be mad at is ourself. Not God. Does, does that make sense? And you're like, well, you mean my little sin caused that tornado? Well, not exactly, but who of us is, is not guilty of sin? Who of us has not contributed to sin in some way? Right? My, my, my main point is that the last person in the world that we should get mad at is God because once we get angry at him, it does, it causes this, like if God's here, my anger at him causes me to turn away. I, I close in on myself. Who's the one person, the one being on, in the universe that could actually comfort me, console me, and help me in what I'm going through? God. But if I've closed myself off, what, how can he get to me? Does this make sense? I've, and over the years, I've served in parish life, been a youth minister, been a, a director of evangelization, have you know, done a lot of pastoral ministry with people over the years. And I've counseled, given pastoral counseling to a lot of families that have had death. And because I did a lot of youth ministry, uh, it, it was a lot of, a lot of times it was a young person. And sometimes those things are so hard to understand, you know. Um, and, and you found a lot of people who were just really angry at God in moments like that. And one of the beautiful things that I saw over and over again was inviting these couples, as angry as they were, to turn back. To be, to be open again to God. To not blame Him, to not be mad at Him, but to turn to Him with all of their hurt, with all of their pain, with all of their confusion, with all of their questions. Uh, that's where you find God in these hard, hard things. So th this is kind of the key thing for tonight that, that I, I just want to emphasize is we need to stop wishing and hoping that things would get better and embrace what we actually have. And I'll, I'll talk more about that at the very end tonight. So let, let me just give you the, the crux of, uh, of this theme tonight. So there's more hard. Why? 
It's been a pretty rough year. Don't you think it'd be time to have the heart over, get something better? Uh, there, there, I'm convinced that there's going to be more hard, and, and here's why. I'm going to give you three key reasons, okay, uh, that, that you can kind of hopefully remember. Uh, number one, there, there's more hard coming because I don't think God's completely done with what he's doing. There, there's a way that God is shaking up the foundation of things right now. And, and it makes sense. In, in some ways, you can see how the world is growing further and further and further away from God. And people in their lives, I think, are struggling with more, they're being more divided and more distracted and more uh, uh, distanced in, in some ways from God. And, and God, in, in periods of time like that, when that happens, one of the things that God does is he shakes everything up because he, he wants to make sure that you're, you're, you're on a solid foundation, first of all, and that you're really going to cling to him and not cling to anything else. Does that make sense? I mean, think, think about it a little bit like somebody who's laying new cement. What, what do they have to do with cement for it to harden properly? You got to get the air bubbles out of it. If air bubbles dry in the cement, it creates po- air pockets and it, it makes the cement unstable. So they'll shake and shake and shake until all of those bubbles rise to the surface. So it makes for a solid, solid foundation. What, why is God shaking things up? It, it, I mean, this is all through Scripture, actually. You, if, if you wanted to go home tonight and Google God shaking. You, you'll just get one scripture passage after another that talks about how God is shaking things. This is, it's just what he does. It's how he corrects. It's how he uh, um, purifies. It's how he judges. So his judgment, his correction, his purification. But all of that, you gotta, we always got to understand the context when God is doing those kinds of things, it's actually all coming from him as our father. Listen, listen to this scripture passage. This is from Hebrews 12. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. Doesn't that make God sound kind of harsh? Like, why, why would God discipline the one that he loves? Okay, is anyone a parent here? Any, any dads in the room? Have you disciplined your children? Why do you discipline them? Because you love them. If, actually, if you didn't discipline them, you wouldn't be loving them because they, they'd be wild well, actually, some of our kids are wild, even, uh, even though we do discipline them, right? Um, discipline is actually a way of loving. It's an important way of loving, right? And many times, boundaries and things that I set on my children are for their own good, right? When my kids were younger, I used to tell them that they couldn't go and play out in the street. Why? Because we had a couple of wild teenagers that lived in our neighborhood. They were always driving 80 miles an hour down the street, and they would kill one of my kids. So they would get in trouble. They would get spankings sometimes if they would go out in the street because, 
it wasn't because I didn't want them to play. It was because I didn't want them to get killed, right? So the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. The world is falling away from God. I don't think anyone would disagree with me. I mean, it's becoming more and more plainly evident every day. He's shaking the foundation of the world. He's trying to find out who's actually clinging to him and only to him. So that's the reason one. Why, why do I think there's going to be more hard? One, because God's not done shaking up the foundation of things, right? Number two, God wants us to be holy. I don't care if you're 12 years old, 13 years old, 15 years old, or 80 years old, or anywhere in between. God wants us to be holy. And he's pursuing us for that aim. In the same sense that you would never be a great athlete or a great musician or a great artist or whatever, you, you wouldn't be great at something without strenuous effort and even pain and suffering. You, you wouldn't get good at something unless you really put all of yourself into it. In the same sense, you're not going to be, you, you, you will never advance in the spiritual life without suffering inconvenience, without strenuous effort, without personal pain and suffering. There, there actually has to be more hard because we need it. Listen to this great quote from C.S. Lewis. God wills to save us, but he cannot save us without us. Do you get that? Like our, our cooperation, our participation in our own saving is critical. God wants to save us. He wills to save every single one of us, but he can't save us without us. And I've heard this somewhere before. I can't claim this as my own, but I don't know where it came from. God loves you enough to pursue you wherever you go, but he loves you way too much to leave you there. The minute he encounters you, he starts transforming you, which may be a painful process. He loves us. He pursues us. But once he meets us, he begins this process of trying to make us like him. And you and I are not like God. So going through that metamorphosis is, is just a painful process, being changed into something that we're currently not, right? So that's the second reason. So for, first reason is there, there's more hard coming because God's not done shaking things up. But secondly, because God wants us to be holy, and if we, if we want to be holy, we just have to endure more uh, to actually get there. But then the third reason, I think, why there's more hard 
the unique times that we live in. There's a great book that I've been reading this past year. Uh, It's called From Christendom to Apostolic Mission. It is is a fantastic book. I, I would highly recommend it. It's hard to get right now. Uh, they literally cannot keep this book in print. Uh, and, and the reason why is because there's people like me that get jazzed about it, and I've bought 2,000 copies already. We gave them to all of the priests in our archdiocese and all of the deacons and all the seminarians and all the Catholic school teachers and youth ministers and DREs and everybody. Dioceses all over the country are just buying, you know, bulk copies of this, and they, they just can't keep the thing in print. But the, the thing, the, the kind of premise of the whole book is we live now in an apostolic time. So from Christendom to apostolic mission. So it, the point that it's making is we used to be in a Christendom era, but now we're in an apostolic era, right? Let me, let me explain what that means. In a Christendom era, most of the secular culture around us largely supports who and what we are. We may not agree on everything, but there's a lot of similarity, right? There's a lot of just basic Christian-type values in the wider society. And many of you, particularly if you're older, you, you can look back to times and experiences in your life where this was really true. All, all around you, there, there would be evidences of Christian faith, e- even if it wasn't explicit, but it would be kind of all around you. People were just nicer and more friendly, and you'd, you know, like there, there were just ways that we cared for each other, and, and I think we're a little bit more human even. But the more and more that time has gone on, we've gotten further and further away from that, and more recently, I think we're actually experiencing some right, sometimes outright hostility towards faith, right? Uh, like there was a big story in the news yesterday out, out in uh, Pennsylvania, I think somewhere in Pennsylvania, a bunch of teenagers like broke into this church and just did all kinds of vandalism. And outside they had all of these statues and they decapitated all of the statues on this church property, you know, like just thousands and thousands of dollars of damage for like for what like just because they don't like the the church or they're they're mad or you know like i'm not sure what the point is maybe there's no point at all and maybe that's the whole thing is like uh you know i i don't care and so i I can do whatever i want right uh but but either way i i think you can see how that that age of christendom is something that's been waning for years uh, Bishop Fulton Sheen, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, anyone remember him? Some of his radio shows and TV shows. Archbishop Fulton Sheen said back in 1974, the era of Christendom is over. Well, if it was over in 1974, it's definitely over now, right? John Paul II said almost the exact same words in the 90s, like 1991. Pope Benedict said it in 2001. I mean, now it's 20 years after Pope Benedict said it. And what we're seeing happen around us is this rapid decline, right? 
So let me just give you one benchmark to, to context this, okay? Think about how long it took for people who are really driving the homosexual agenda, which I, I do believe that it was agen an agenda. And there's actually people that have talked about how it was orchestrated with media and television shows and magazines and advertising. Like there, there, was, there was a textbook that they were following to make acceptance of homosexual lifestyle more broadly accepted in, in the wider culture. Uh, and, and somebody literally wrote a book about it and people were following his book and it it's, has since come out what the plan was, right? But think about how long that strategy took. How, how, how long do you think that took? It was a couple of decades or longer. It was a very long, slow process of that becoming more and more uh, accepted, right? Now, just think about how quickly the transgender agenda has become something almost widely accepted. Now, I'm, I'm not saying anything about what to believe about these things or even what I believe, so I don't want to get into the controversy or offend anybody. I'm just talking about the way people think and the way minds are shifted. And where, where you have one issue that literally took 20 or more years to advance an ideology, we literally have watched something happen in a matter of years, five, six years, an extreme agenda uh, ideology has almost become mainstream in, in, a, in, a, in a matter of five years or so. That is evidence, I believe, of how, ra how much more quickly the decline is happening, if, if that makes sense, right? So th that's the point of this book is, is, is basically to help us understand, okay, the era of Christendom is over, so we're finding ourselves in more of an apostolic time. Well, what, what does apostolic mean? Well, so they're, they're going back to the early church and talking about the first apostles. So right after Jesus uh, died and rose again and then called them together and breathed on them and told them to go to the corners of the world and, and share about him with everybody, right? That was definitely an apostolic time, right? There was no church. There was no Rome. There, there was no uh, bishops. You know, like there, there was 11 priests because one of them had just died. There was 11 bishops because they were the same people. They had no parish staff. They had no parishes. They had no schools. They had no hospitals. They had no colleges. They had nothing. And they were in a very hostile pagan culture of the Roman Empire and they were being told by Jesus to go and spread the message to everybody far and wide to all four corners of the planet. And in 300 years, they had converted half of the Roman Empire. In the year 315, the emperor Constantine at the time declared Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, many, many people will report that in history, the reason why he did that is because um, 
is because he himself had become Christian. Well, if, if you ever study any history about Constantine, he may have said he was Christian, but after he became Christian, he still killed two of his children uh, because he thought that they were trying to take the throne from him. Uh, so his practice of Christianity was lacking slightly, right? And I think he killed one of his, he killed his wife too, didn't he? Because uh, he, he was suspicious of her too. I mean, it's like, it, it, like I said, I don't, I don't think his conversion was really authentic. I, I don't think the Edict of Milan, which is where he made, it, made Christianity the official religion, I, I don't think that was because he was Christian himself. I, I think he was just acknowledging the reality. More than 50% of the population is Christian. And every time we kill a Christian or martyr them, 10 more crop up where the person is we martyred. Like, we, we literally are making them grow by killing them. So if I make it the official religion, maybe we'll stop killing them and maybe they'll stop growing. That is an apostolic time. Do you see how different that is? The wider culture largely doesn't support what we believe. They think very differently about everything. Uh, you, you can't expect that they're going to support the way you want to raise your kids. You can't expect that they're going to have the same values or think the same things are important. And so you know that, you just accept it, and you, and, and you kind of just face that reality, right? And then you try and share your faith and witness. So here's the reason, this is the third reason why I think there's more hard coming is because of the times that we live in. Here, here's a couple of things that this book says about these unique times. In an apostolic age, every Christian is by necessity a witness and an evangelist. Even you teenagers. Every Christian needs to be a witness and an evangelist in their little corner of the world. Everyone. Because in an apostolic age, you can't depend that anyone around you is going to believe. So you've got to stand up for yourself. In an age of Christendom, when it seems like everybody believes, like what's the point of evangelizing? I actually kind of like an apostolic age. It kind of excites me. The role of the lady and the importance of lay holiness emerge with greater clarity as necessary for the church to complete her mission. So in an apostolic age, the church is going to depend upon us, lay people. We, we, obviously, our priests are our leaders and our shepherds and our spiritual fathers, but they need us as lay people to rise up and almost take up arms, if you will, spiritual arms, to do what we're called to do. This is what gets into the heart. In an apostolic age, the possibility of suffering for the faith, even undergoing martyrdom, is present as a heroic spirit of witnessing with courage animates the whole of the church. There also will be error in all of its forms, doctrinal and moral. In such a cultural atmosphere, it will be difficult for Christians to sustain their own spiritual and moral vision. I mean, haven't we already started experiencing this, right? Where you, you want to believe what you think the church really teaches, and then 10 other people around you who also say that they're Catholic say, I don't think the church teaches that. We're not that 
We're not that hard, right? This is already beginning to happen around us where errors and uh, doctrinal and moral errors, all of that stuff is starting to become more and more attractive and confusing even. So I I won't say more about this book, but I I, I think it, it captures in some ways for me why I think there's more hard coming. So I, I talked about those three reasons. You know, one, I don't think God's done shaking up the foundation of things. He wants to know that we're really clinging to him. But he wants us to be holy. He's not, he's not going to settle to leave us where we are. He wants to, wants to transform us, wants us to become like him. But we are entering into, th- this book says, this isn't an age of change. This is a change of the ages. The change that we are going through and what we're entering into, I, I think is, is going to be kind of shocking. And a lot of what we've experienced this past year is the beginning of that shock. We're, we're actually watching the world detach itself from God right in front of our eyes. And we watch as that happens, and it's painful to watch, isn't it? And unfortunately, if we truly are entering into an apostolic age, which I believe we are, I think there's more of that coming. So I, I want to take a few minutes and just have you talk with who you're near. If you can get together with a, some other people that you know, or if you're just here with your spouse. But I, I want to give you three questions. And I, I might have to give these to you in, in steps because <laughs> you won't remember them. Um, here's the first question. How are you holding up in the hard? Th- this is a hard thing to hear. Like it's, it's been a rough, rough year, very, very hard. It's stretched all of us like we've never been stretched before. And for somebody to stand up here and say, Okay, buckle up. There's more hard coming. That's kind of hard to hear. Like, who, who wants to hear that, you know? So it's a good question to start with. How are you holding up with what you've already had? With the hard that you're in right now? How are, how are you holding up? Okay? So let's just start with that question. I'll give you a few minutes, and then I'll give you the second question. Okay, that first question was, how are you holding up? Second, what are some signs of God's life that you've seen in the midst of the heart? Like, and, and again, this is one of the things I was saying earlier that I, I just have found that you can find God in the midst of tragedy and difficulty. And um, sometimes you have to look hard, but he's there. In, in my experience, he's always been there. In, in, in the midst of every hard thing that's ever happened in my life. I just had to look for him. Uh, what are some signs of God's life in the midst of what's going on in, in your hard stuff? So second question. Talk amongst yourself. <laughs> okay, let me give you your last question. If you're still talking on question two, you can roll roll over into the third one, but what, what help 
I'm sorry, where, where do you need some help, some support or encouragement, uh, right? So that, that second question, where were some signs of God's life that you see? But what, what help do you need? What support or encouragement do you need? And I know some of you are talking with your spouses, but I actually asked these kinds of questions to my wife the other night. And I was amazed at answers, things that I had not, I was not aware of. And I was only asking her because I was planning this to give an admission talk uh, and was the only reason why I asked the question. And I, I was kind of embarrassed, actually, that I hadn't thought to ask it sooner, right? What, what do you, where do you need some help, some support, or some encouragement? You know, when it comes to encouragement, uh, you don't have to do a lot. I, I had this experience once, I mean, this was like four years ago. Was, we, we were still living in Denver at the time. We lived in Oklahoma City for three and a half years. And, and, I, and I think it was a while uh, back when we were there. But I, I was at the gym one morning working out and I, I had started this new exercise routine where I would, I would have three exercises that I would just kind of do in rapid cycles and you'd, you'd have to go through all three things. And so you had to get dumbbells and, you know, uh, ba- you know those bands. And I, I was actually doing something that required pull-ups and burpees. So I was doing burpees, pull-ups, and something with a couple of dumbbells. But part of the whole exercise routine is that you had to do things so fast that you were getting your heart rate up to this threshold. And so you, you, you had to go really, really fast through, through the thing. And then you could take like a 60-second break. And then, then you had to go through the cycle again. You had to take a 60-second break. And um, so I, I had to do like seven sets of these. And literally by the end, uh, at, at my age, right, like so I was probably more over 50 at that point, uh, like I'm just dying. Uh, I'm sweating like crazy and like panting. Does anyone know what a burpee is? I know some of the younger, younger people probably do. Uh, burpees are just hard, you know, uh, and when you do a bunch of them in a row, which, which I had to do 10, 10 burpees, you know, and then switch to the next exercise, you had to switch to the next exercise with no, with no breath. So, I mean, like just doing 10 burpees by itself gets you to the point where you literally are about ready to have a heart attack, and then you just jump and start another exercise. Uh, so it, it was intense. And so I'm doing the best I can, and this guy... I don't even know him. I have no idea who he is, but he, he just walked through my, my little area, and this is all he said. Man, you are killing it. And then walks away. And like I was in the middle of like my 10 burpees, you know. Like what, what do you think happened to me in that moment? I started doing my burpees faster. Like... I, I got all fired up, like just a little sentence, like, man, you're killing it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm killing it. I probably look like a complete idiot, actually. But um, encouragement is kind of strange like that. You know, like uh, th- there, there's a way that I, I actually think the way that we've been dealing with the whole pandemic, we've used the wrong word, unfortunately. Like when they use the term social distancing, it was just the wrong, they should not have ever used that term. They should have said physical distancing. 
Because what, what, what it's communicated, I think, largely in our whole culture is we can't talk to each other. We can't be social, which is not the point of it, right? Like you can have distance, physical distance, and, and even wear a mask and still be social, right? Uh, so, I, I, you know, like you go into a grocery store and nobody will look at you. Nobody will talk to you. If you even get near somebody, like they, they, they move away from you, like they're scared of you. Uh, and you're just like, what, what, what have we done to ourselves, you know, that, we, that we've become like this, you know? And, and I think you kind of add to that, like, and again, this is no, I, I don't, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, I don't know any of these things, so it's like way above any of my, under, my ability to understand. But, but one thing that I ponder, in, in the first 300 years, you know, I told you how Christianity grew at a rate of 10% a decade for those first 300 years. That doesn't seem very substantial until you realize that in 300 years they converted half of the Roman Empire. That's pretty substantial. Half of the population were converted at just 10% a decade. But you know, two of the most significant contributing factors to the growth, what do you think they were? Plagues. There were two of them in those 300 years. And during the plagues, all of the people, wealthy, privileged people, you know, who were somebody, fled. They ran away up into the mountains and away from the cities where they could get away from anyone who was sick, including their own family members. Christians, they lived life very differently. They didn't look at life the way that the secular pagans did. They didn't worry about death. They didn't run away from anything. Because like, well, if I'm going to die, God must want me to die. And so they stayed in the cities, and they actually cared for and took care of everyone who was sick including family members of rich families and others who had abandoned them and left them. After the plague was over, the, most of the Christians didn't die. And when the, when the family members came back, the one person who had been cared for and nursed back to health by the Christians evangelized their whole families. So the, the, the church just grew like in leaps and bounds all around the pandemic. And... I, I don't know, like, just ponder the question with me for a minute. Like, the church and Christians have actually been forced, even by our own laws and our own restrictions in the midst of this pandemic, to actually not, not be able to do anything to care for the people around us. Like, how could Christianity grow in the midst of the COVID pandemic? if we actually can't be Christian. I don't care if I'm going to get sick. I don't care if I would even die. I want to go care for somebody who's dying, who's sick, who needs help. It's just a question that I think is worth pondering, uh, but actually not what I was planning to say. So let me get back to what I was planning to talk about. Let me just wrap up. Very, very practical. Five things. Uh, 
when, when, when we talk about something like this, okay, there's more hard coming. Uh, it can kind of, I don't want you to walk out the door thinking like, oh my gosh, doom and gloom. This is, this is going to be so horrible, right? I, I want to give us some very tangible things that we can actually do, action steps in the face of what is coming. If there's hard coming, what, what do we do? Okay, number one, stop complaining. How many of you would be willing to raise your right hand tonight and actually make a pledge that you're not going to complain about the COVID pandemic or any of the other things going on around us anymore? My, my wife and I have done this. We actually did it for Lent. I'm not giving up chocolate this year for Lent. I'm giving up complaining. Okay? You, you can make this commitment on your own if you want to. But here would be my invitation. What good is it doing? It's, it's doing absolutely no good whatsoever to complain and bicker and gripe and, you know, like, oh, the stupid mask and, you know what I'm saying? Like, stop complaining. Every time you're tempted to complain, instead say something that you're grateful for. It would just be an easy way that you could just start training your mind to start thinking differently. So every time the complaint wells up in you, which it happens like a hundred times a day, doesn't it? Right? When that person honks at me one more time, you know, rather than complaining, I'll be honest with you, I followed a guy into the Panera parking lot this morning and honked at him. <laughs> I didn't complain, but I honked really loud and long. <laughs> He was the fifth guy, and I, I just had it. I was just like, what is going on? So I pulled in the parking lot, and as, as he parks in front of us, laid on the horn. <laughs> oh, Lord, forgive me. Have mercy on me. Uh, every time you're tempted to complain, instead say something you're grateful for, okay? So stop complaining. Two, embrace our reality. This is one of the main things I was talking about tonight. Embrace our reality. Stop wishing, hoping for things to get better and find God in what is right now. It's just, it's healthier, it's more positive, it's, uh, it's more life-giving, it opens up your heart to others. It's just good all the way around. So embrace our reality, stop wishing and hoping for something different. Three, get closer to Jesus. Get closer to him. And here would be the reason why I think this is so important. In difficult, difficult times, we have a tendency to pull away, actually, from God. Because things get hard. We, we're in trials. Desolation sets in. All, all of this stuff happens. And we can find ourselves, sometimes even in fear, we pull back, right? We have a great example in Peter. What happened when things got really desolate and hard and difficult for Peter and the other apostles? Jesus got arrested. There's a, there's a great passage in the scriptures where it literally says these words, and Peter followed at a distance. That was when they arrested Jesus and took him to the praetorium. What happened next? Peter denied that he even knew Jesus three times. So spiritual principle, following Jesus at a distance precedes betrayal. 
And if we're going to go through a period of time where things are going to get more heated and more intense, and I think even persecution, more intense persecution coming against people who say they're Christian or, or who say they're Catholic, if you're following Jesus at a distance, you are ripe for the picking. And you're going to get picked off. Like you're, you're, you're going to cave in, in, in that kind of environment. Follow close. Uh, in, in, in a lot of the literature about early discipleship, you know, in the time of Jesus, they had this line that rabbis would say to their disciple when they would say, come follow me. Some of the other rabbis would come around and would pray over them right then. And they would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi which meant may you walk so close behind them that you literally get covered by the dust kicked up by their footsteps. That's not following at a distance. That's following really close. So three, get closer to Jesus. Four, find your fellowship. Any of you Lord of the Rings fans? I'm a Lord of the Rings geek, okay? Little known secret, when I was in high school, a friend of mine and I, we memorized the Elfish alphabet in the appendix and wrote notes to each other in Elvish. I'm cool. <laughs> Fellowship of the Ring. If, if you've ever watched those movies or read the books, the, the books are far better than the movies, but actually the movies are pretty good. Um, but the, the, the whole thing about the fellowship of the ring is critical. And, and, and the whole analogy is none of us can get through the spiritual task ahead of us alone. We need a fellowship, right? Lone rangers are never good Christians. You don't find many of them, actually. And actually, if you look back in the history, our, the great history of our faith as Catholics, Saints always come in bunches. Like throughout unique periods of history in the church, like saints would emerge, particularly in difficult times, actually. It's one of the things that I think is really exciting about the time in history that we find ourselves. Uh, what, what if God's actually raising up a bunch of saints right now? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be awesome? That could be you. could be me. You know, people could make a window for us someday in our church, you know. Um, Saints come in bunches. Okay, so stop complaining. Two, embrace our reality. Three, get closer to Jesus. Four, find your fellowship. Five, 10,000 hours. You ever heard this wisdom? It takes 10,000 hours of practice to become a master at anything. It was said by a basketball player about basketball. It takes 10,000 hours of basketball practice to become a master at it. And, and there's some players that have a goal of shooting 10,000 baskets, you know. Uh, that, that, that's how they, they just keep shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting, right? The way that you get good at something is to practice. You're not going to become a saint without practicing, without a lot of intentional practice, right? Don't let anything go to waste. Not even a pandemic don't let this pandemic go to waste. I, I, I literally think that one of the things that God has done through this uh, very difficult year is help us get in shape. 
It, it, was, it was like boot camp training. We, we, we got ourselves kind of jarred loose from living, you know, kind of soft, comfortable lives, and we got thrown a little bit into some reality, right? Let that build up some muscles and build up some strength. May it build up our endurance for suffering and inconvenience, strengthen our capacity to be joyful in the midst of difficult circumstances, and stretch our muscles to serve others. Ultimately, you and I, we are going to be most fully ourselves when we're giving ourselves away as a gift to others. And all of the sacrifice that that entails. So keep practicing at that. Keep practicing. 10,000 hours, okay? So as a wrap-up tonight, uh, tomorrow... We're going to, you know, we, we talked all about there's more hard. I talked about the reasons why, but then what can we do in the face of more hard coming? Tomorrow, I want to talk about there's more we have to give. There's more we have to give. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to tell some stories tomorrow night about what God's been doing in, in my life to kind of, in some ways, uh, stretch my threshold for what I was willing to give. Uh, and it's been a beautiful experience. There's more that I can give. Uh, as, as we come to an end tonight, um, I just want to invite, if anyone is in need of prayer, uh, Tom has a prayer team here. I would be willing to pray with, with, with anyone if you have prayer for something specific in your life. Uh, but as, as we talk about the hard, I know many of you have been going through very difficult circumstances and hard, hard things this past year. And if you're finding yourself kind of in the thick of that and you can't even see God's light in the midst of it, like we were talking about earlier, uh, it, it might be good to just turn to God in some prayer and have someone else support you, you know. Um, so we'll have a couple of prayer teams up here after we end tonight, if anyone would like, uh, like to get some prayer, okay?